Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, yes, hello there, welcome. It is truly Downtown, the podcast, no fooling around. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine. We're brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 244, the number, episode number 244 this week on the program. Coming up in a moment, one of the hottest comics in the world. Later on, terrific writer Dan Epstein talking about his new music blog on Substack called Jagged Time Lapse. Always love talking to Dan. And so we'll do a little bit of that in a bit. But up first, boy, if there's a hotter comic on the planet than Burt Kreischer, I'm not sure who it is. He is everywhere. Netflix specials, the Netflix series, The Cabin, an upcoming film with Mark Hamill, The Machine, and in the midst of his Tops Off world tour that literally is taking him all over the planet, it is his moment in time right now. Bert Kreischer, who's coming to Bangor, the Cross Insurance Center, on February 5th as part of that Tops Off world tour. We had a chance to talk about the tour and more with Bert Kreischer here on downtown. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. I got my shirt off. I'm feeling good. Oh, good. I'm walking through a park in London right now, so we couldn't be happier. <laughs> yeah, you are. You're everywhere. Uh, London, Glasgow, uh, all over the UK, back to the States to come here to Bangor in early February. You're the hardest working man in show business. I'm, I don't know if I'm not. I think that's Kevin Hart, but I'll take the second hardest. <laughs> I'll take the tallest man or hardest working man in show business. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, how cool was it? We've watched the video a number of times here. Seeing David Letterman talking about you with Neil Brennan. Uh, it was overwhelming. I've had two Letterman experiences that are pretty overwhelming. He did an interview for the Comedy Store one time, and that's the first time I heard him randomly bring me up, just brought my name up, and I was blown away. I was like, because I was like, I, I knew I had done his show, but I didn't think he knew who I was. And then I got a text from Sarah Silverman, who was like, yo, I just giving you a heads up. I was hanging out with David Letterman, and he brought you up a couple times, this shirtless thing. And I was like, really? And then I was getting ready to shoot my special. I was in Omaha at a leather store with my wife buying jackets, and I got a text from Neil Brennan saying, yo, this is what just happened on our show. And it was, uh, it was the voicemail from David Letterman, and it blew me away. Well, let's go back a little bit to to the beginning or maybe even earlier. You were an English major at Florida State, right? Yeah, I was a creative writing major at Florida State with a minor in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what, seven years at Florida State. Uh, Bert, I got to tell you, you're a piker, man. It took me 13 to get my degree. <laughs> Why well, do something fast if you like it, right? Right, exactly. I was waiting to see if they would name a building after me. When it was clear they wouldn't, I was out. I just want to make enough money so I can go back and put a statue of myself just off campus <laughs> where people rub my belly for good luck. I think that would be fabulous. <laughs> now, am I right that it was in some ways a bad breakup that led to you getting discovered by Rolling Stone? Well, yeah, kind of. I, I, you know, it's just, I always, I'm obsessed with the sliding doors in our life and how they kind of push us into a direction. But I had a, when I was in Russia, my girlfriend was sleeping with my best friend. And when I came home, I was kind of ready to like calm down and chill out and like get serious about life. I was, you know, just back back through Europe. And then I found out this happened and I just went, you know what? 
I'm just going to party. I had a buddy who's like, I don't know how to tell you how to deal with emotions, but I know if you drink, they go away. And so <laughs> I just started partying really hard. And then next thing you know, Rolling Stone calls our house. I would have never lived with these guys that I was living with. They're all still my close friends. And I ended up uh, being there when they called the house. And I was taking a bong hit. And it's just kind of all those things line up. And then all, next thing you know, you're, your life's changed forever. Had I stayed with that girl, I wouldn't be walking through a beautiful park in London talking to you today with a sold-out show at the Apollo tonight. It's an amazing story. And I, I think the first time I was aware of what you were doing was on Birth the Conqueror. I, I love that show. Are you a daring guy by nature? Uh, no. That's, I think that was what made all those shows work. Birth the Conqueror, Trip Flip. Hurt Bert was that I am a pretty even keeled dude who has anxiety and panic, and so I every time I get put in those situations I freak out, and so I think that's what was the entertaining part. I don't know. I I never understood why I kept getting offered them, but I kept getting offered them. So and I kept taking them because I needed the money. And I think it was a uh, part of Birth the Conqueror. You came here to Maine to participate in the wife carrying competition. Yeah, that was so much fun. We wanted to. It was like the first time my wife got to do uh, go travel with me. You know, we had just had kids, we were broke, and then Travel Channel flew her out first class up to Maine, and then we did the wife carrying competition. Did horribly. We did horribly, horribly. And this, by the way, this is when my wife was at her fighting weight. We didn't <laughs> do so well now either, but we did horribly. We're talking with Bert Kreischer on Downtown uh, on Hurt Bert, one of the most memorable episodes uh, was your run-in with the bear, which did not go the way anybody planned. Well, I think, you know, the first, the second I got there and the bear was sitting on a park bench and it looked like, like waiting for his, his scene, smoking a cigarette practically. <laughs> I and they're like, what are you doing? That's not how you meet a bear. I'm like, what? And they're like, you put a marshmallow in your mouth, you show him the marshmallow, you let him take the marshmallow out of your mouth with his mouth, and that's how he learns to trust you. And I was like, trust me. I want to trust him. He's the bear. And so I took five marshmallows out of my mouth. Next thing you know, I'm passed out unconscious. And, and the rest is history. <laughs> See, that would I would not only be off bears after that. I would be off marshmallows. By the way, I was almost off television after that. And then I got mauled by a bull. Man, oh, man. And then uh, jumping out of a plane with Rachel Ray who I was impressed to find out from you is an actual badass. She's a gangster. She's a gangster. She's, by the way, she's one of the funniest, funnest, funniest people I've ever been around. I, I, I'm bummed that I don't see her as much. You know, I think at the time I was doing so much Travel Channel that I'd do her show and then I'd be in New York and she'd be like, oh, you should come over to the house for, we're having a big party. And then I remember one time she flew me down to Mexico to do a segment with her. She was such a big supporter of mine. And then, uh, and then, you know, when you kind of get out of that, 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 that scope of of that side of the entertainment business, the more of the you know brand friendly lifestyle brand thing, and now what I do now is do podcasts with my buddy and say horrific things. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she's awesome. I love Rach. So I, I feel like I know them from from the podcast and, and from your specials. How are Leanne and the girls? Uh, girls are great. Georgia's up at college now. Isla is. By herself at the house, she's taking jujitsu. She's kids changed entirely. It's like well, I don't even know who she is anymore. And uh, and Leanne is buying houses left and right. <laughs> <laughs> Leanne's, Leanne's goal is to be a real estate mogul. Now, do you still have the rescue cat around here? We're shocked that anybody would want to rescue a cat. Yeah, Gus, Gus. 
get a street cat and try to move them into your house. It's like moving in a homeless person. They they pee everywhere. <laughs> your couch is torn up. You're like, good God. <laughs> you make the same noise talking about your cat that I do about my cat, Jeffrey. Just, ugh. Oh, yeah. Just in the mornings. I would I would have crazy dreams in the mornings of just because if you hear the cat just and then I just have I have dreams of women complaining to me. Why are you going to clean that up? What is, why is your bag in the middle? And then next, you know, I wake up. It's my cat going. <laughs> now, you, you if I'm right, you turned 50 uh, back in the fall. Was that difficult for you? It has been. It has been because, you know, I, I've kind of, I've always lived my life like a child. And I think you could always forget it. Like 40, you're like, eh, I'm still pretty young. And then 40, in your 40s, you're like, oh, there's still a four in there. And then once you turn 50, you're like, well, I'm like a, I'm like an old man. This is when people have midlife crises. And I still, I'm a kid. I'm sitting here in a hoodie sweatshirt with sneakers on and sweatpants. Uh, like, sun, like I'm, I'm still a kid. I still feel like a kid. We went out to a, we went out to this live sex show in London called The Box last night. And I'm, but I'm like, the, I, I look around and I'm like, oh, I'm not, I might be the oldest guy in here. It's all kids and they're all dressed cool and dancing and partying. And, and then I'm sitting there just drinking vodka going, this will put me to bed tonight. <laughs> <laughs> See, but I don't know that you ever have to grow up. I'm, I'm 64 and I, I hang around. Most of my friends are people in their mid forties and I, I don't, in some ways I'm maybe more immature than they are. Oh, I, my my best friend's Tom Segura, and luckily he looks sixty, but he's <laughs> younger than I am. But he looks old, like old. He's and he's, but now he's on steroids, so he looks great. <laughs> uh, speaking of the podcast, you've got uh, three of them: the Burt Cast, uh, your show with Tom, Two Bears, One Cave, uh, your podcast with Bill Burr. Is that a different comedic muscle that you get to stretch doing those podcasts? Yeah, I think so. I think. Birdcast is more uh, is more of a hang conversation and and me trying to listen with two bears. It's just it's just anything goes. It's me and Tom just trying to make each other laugh, and we know each other so well that uh, that the silliest things will make us laugh and then randomly go viral. And so and we're and we're both hard hard laughers, you know. Well, your laugh is great. It's an infectious laugh. Well, I love laughing, and that's why I feel like you know. When I was a kid, you didn't see 50-year-olds laugh, you know? Like, 50-year-olds were like old men. I remember when my dad was 50, I was like, he is old. And now I look at 50, I'm like, I'm still lifting weights and working out. And, I mean, you know, some guy offered me cocaine last night. I had to turn it down because my cardiologist said no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned your dad, and you've said a number of times that your dad, that I guess still today, doesn't quite get you. No, no, not at all. He never has. He's, You know, he... He comes from a different world. You know, he lost his dad when he was 13. And so he's had to be the man of the house, or at least the man of his house, since he was 13 and figure things out his own way. And I think when you have a kid born into, let's just call it privilege, I wouldn't say, you know, we weren't rich or anything, but like just privilege of, of having a father, of having a mother, having them still married, two sisters, you know, got a car when I was 16. I think you look at that kid who gets everything he wants, and go, well, that would have been nice, you know? And I think he watches my life choices, like getting stand-up, and goes, who does, like, he, he'll think, who does what they want to do for their a living? I, he was a lawyer because that's what would make money. 
You know, he didn't pick an occupation he loved. But I think, we, you know, the older I get, the more we're starting to get each other. Do you think that having that upbringing you had made it easier for you to make that choice, that you felt comfortable taking a chance and doing something that uh, on the surface didn't make a lot of sense? Yeah, and, and it's tough, too, because it, it comes back to you because your kids do the same thing. Like, my, I watch my kids make decisions, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, no, what, what are you doing? Like, like it doesn't, like, I, 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 if I was stupid, I was stupid. I, if, in hindsight, the idea to become a stand-up is one of the most irresponsible decisions you'd ever make. To give up everything and move to New York and start doing stand-up and go, this is my thing. It, it, it's just the most irresponsible decision. But, uh, but I mean, I look at my kids and my daughters, just them picking colleges. I wanted Georgia to go to University of Colorado at Boulder. And she went to the school and she's like, not for me. And I was like, well, hold on. What are you looking at that I'm not looking at? Because this looks like the coolest college I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> like, what about Florida State? What about what about Northern Arizona? Like, let's go to Flagstaff. Like, I was I was sending her places I wanted to go, mostly because I wanted to go to the football games. By the way, I'm so bummed because now Dion's coach at Boulder. But That's right. Yeah. <laughs> they make their own decisions, and then and then you know we went to the college she goes to uh, for parents' weekend, and I'm walking around the school going, "This is her. This is so her." Like, she knows, knows herself way better. So I guess she's got to trust her stupid kids. Isn't that one of the, the great challenges of parenting now? I'm, like I said, I'm 64. I got a nine-year-old. What the hell was I thinking? But it, <laughs> it, it's such a challenge to, I, I think, you have an idea in your head of, of what you hope they'll be, and then they become what they want to become. And, and it, it's hard sometimes to step back and say, well, that's their choice, and that's their life, and, and I support fully what they're doing. Oh, she got a septum ring, like a nose ring in the center of her nose. And I was like, and she comes home for Christmas. I go, what the hell are you doing? And she's like, what? It looks good. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> but, you know, as her dad, I go, no one's looking at your beautiful face. They're looking at this bull ring in the center of your face now. But, you know, it's funny. And then I go out to this these, a bar the other night, and I see a girl with the nose ring there. And I was like, wow, she's hot. And then I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. What am I doing? Like, like my instinct. I was like, wow, that girl's really pretty. And then I'm like, oh, my God. That's the way my daughter's got one of those. <laughs> she ended up coming up to me, and I said, was your dad upset when you got that? She was like, of course. But who listens to their dad? And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> Bingo. Uh, Bert Kreischer with us on downtown. He'll be at the Cross Center on February 5th, the Top Soft World Tour. Or is it the Birdie Boy Relapse Tour? I'm, I'm getting oh. – is it both? It's tops off. We, okay. we we retired the Birdie Boy Relapse Tour, that problematic name that I, I called my tour. <laughs> I didn't realize how serious people take their sobriety. But so we go tops <laughs> off because uh, we do we have a fun we have a fun thing. We're in arenas, we're in bigger venues, so we do a tops off cam like a kiss cam and dudes rip their shirt off and it's awesome. It's awesome. We try to you know, we're trying to make everything just a little bigger on this tour because this is the you know, this is the top of the mountain. This is the tour where you hang your hat and then you go Let's, let's take a year off after this tour. So how tough is it? Because comedy, uh, to me, is such an intimate thing. You're in a club. You can make eye contact. You know who's laughing, who's not. How is it different when you're doing it, like, in a big stadium? Uh, it's not, you know, it, oddly enough, it crazy as it sounds, it's not that different. And I think, I think my act matured when I went to theaters. I think I learned to get rid of a lot of the cheat codes that we use as comics, mm. like, like, you know, lazy crowd work to get into a bit. And I started really focusing on the material and making sure the material was sharp. And and I think then I released Secret Time, and that was like probably 
see your time and then hey big boy and then i just did my last special and i think i'm a storyteller so what happens in these venues is as crazy as it sounds you'll have twelve thousand people just like silent waiting to hear what you're about to say and i and it's it's bizarre i mean i had i've had uh some of the hockey players who play one of the venues i played they're like i've never heard this place as quiet as it was as you're about to tell the machine story and you're going into the bit and you're well you're and 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 then when you know and then the pops are great when you rip your shirt off the pop is huge and when i start the machine the pop is huge and you know at the end of the thing it's like oh it's gorgeous things lights on and their cell phones and i mean it's magical it really is magical is there anything that feels better than that silence when you're on that stage and you know that silence is because of you uh the best moment is when you take the silence and you spin it and it, and and you hear the, the explosion of laughter yeah. that moment where you where you trick them where you where you surprise them and they didn't see it coming and they explode that's the moment you live for that's the thing where you're like wow uh, the specials are great uh, hey big boy I, I had tears streaming down my face i also loved uh, the cabin i i thought that was fabulous and there's well, there's such a wonderful moment in there uh, that your dad shared with Caitlyn Jenner. That was that was so cool. It was so unexpected. I talked to my dad that morning, and I said, hey, I'm hanging out with Caitlyn Jenner. And his initial reaction was, don't, don't. Cancel the interview. You're going to say something wrong. You're going to mess it up, and, and, and everyone's going to come after you, and it'll be innocent, but you're going to look like a, a, a bad person. Don't do it. And, he, and then he started going. He goes, buddy, you don't know what a hero you're about to talk to. You do not want to offend this woman. She was a hero, and he starts going on and on. And I'm like, "Wow, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this time if I get a chance. I'm gonna Facetime my dad and let him talk to, to Caitlin." And then my my dad was really big in the track and field, and so my dad all of a sudden just melted down talking to someone. I didn't realize he had, what a connection in the '72 Olympics. I had just been born, and my dad was watching it with me on my on his lap, and he had given up on his dream of being in track and field, and now he was watching Caitlin do what he would, he would have loved to have done. And he had so many questions. And it was, you know, I got really lucky to catch lightning in a bottle and have that opportunity with my dad. Now, not that I didn't already know you're a better man than me, but ain't no way I could feel dress an emu. <laughs> that was the girl's dream. <laughs> and then halfway through, he goes, are we going to get in trouble for this? <laughs> You've got a movie coming out in May, The Machine. I assume it's it's based on your time uh, with the Russian mob. Yeah, Memorial Day weekend, uh, my movie, The Machine, comes out only in theaters. It's me and Mark Hamill. He plays my dad, and we get kidnapped by the Russian mafia. It's I think everyone's going to love it. How how amazing for for a kid of the uh, of the seventies to be working with Mark Hamill. Oh, a, a dream come true. I mean, Mark Hamill's just, I mean, it's like, he's Luke Skywalker. I mean, Darth Vader's my grandfather. It's, it's, <laughs> I could not, I could not have been more, more overwhelmed by the experience and more um, satisfied. I mean, he's just the, the sweetest guy in the world. I absolutely adore him. Are you excited to see what the Yankees will roll out this coming season? <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Listen, it could be worse. You could be up here in New England and be a Red Sox fan. <laughs> hey, I uh, I can't I can't wait. New England's such a beautiful area. I can't wait to get up to Maine. Well, I know people around here uh, can't wait to see you. February 5th at the Cross Insurance Center in Bangor. The tops off 
World Tour coming here. We're going to love your work. Uh, looking forward to seeing the show. Great to have you on with us today. Uh, kick some ass in London tonight. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate it. From the bottom of my heart, that was a blast. Well, he's a funny guy and an interesting one, too. It's Bert Kreischer, the Tops Off World Tour, perhaps coming to a town near you. Check it out online at BertBertBert.com. We'll take a little break here. Word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, writer Dan Epstein talks music with us on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. Back on Downtown, the podcast, time to talk a little music with one of our favorite guests on the program. He's the author of books like Big Hair and Plastic Grass, Stars and Strikes, and his recent collaboration with Ron Bloomberg on the book, The Captain and Me. He's also one of the best music writers around, and you can find his work in a new home on Substack, his blog called Jagged Time Lapse. Our conversation with Dan Epstein here on Downtown. Let's talk about uh, Jagged Time Lapse, which you started, uh, what, just about six months ago now? Uh, Not even. Uh, I think uh, it's officially launched at the end of August. Well, what was the impetus behind this, Dan? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is that, you know, I've been been writing about music uh, professionally and non-professionally for, um, for over 30 years now. And in that time, I've accumulated all these stories and interviews and um, tales that, you know, I often... You know, if you and I were to go out for a drink or or dinner somewhere, I would probably pull several of uh, these stories out of my <laughs> quiver uh, in, in the course of our meal. And I just thought, like, I've been doing this for years. Why don't you know? Why don't I actually write these stories down, and so that I can have them all in one place? Um, the other thing is that I've been kind of working on and off over the years of sort of a musical memoir of my adolescence and just, you know, talking about how, you know, specific songs really, you know, not only did it, I really like them, but they really kind of transformed the way I looked at the world. And I'd been sort of, you know, distracted by everything else going on in my life and in the world. And finally, I just thought, you know, if I do something like this, have a sub stack where I can post these things as I, as I finish, you know, each chapter as I finish it, That'll give me a little more of a kick in the butt to actually get it done. And then also, I just, you know, uh, music, you know, looking back at, you know, these last few years, which have been difficult for everybody, you know, I look at the things that really kind of brought me happiness in that time. uh, and, And music is really the thing over everything else, like more than movies, more than baseball, more than food you know it's just like music is the thing that i've returned to time and time again for solace for perspective for um inspiration and i just thought like you know i need to be doing something that kind of you know 
pays tribute to that and 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 really um speaks to the power of music in in all of our lives and I feel like in some ways I have you know a slightly more unique angle than than many people who write about <laughs> it or maybe not but uh, I like to think so and uh and I think you know I I uh, a lot of the things I want to write about are not things that I can get my editors at the various publications I write for to sign off on because they're not about new artists or they're not about, you know, or, or they're about like, you know, some obscure Elvis uh, TV commercial from the early 70s. You know, things that just like it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily move newspapers. But if you if you're into music and you're into music ephemera and you're into, you know, uh, the kind of more oddball ways that music seeps into our consciousness, uh, I think you'll find it interesting. Oh, the Elvis commercial, by the way, when I read that, I thought, oh, my God, I, I remember that commercial like it was yesterday. <laughs> and I could I could picture those visuals that went along with it. Absolutely. That, and that was the thing, too, you know, because and, and, and what inspired me to write about that was that, you know, we, we just passed Elvis's birthday. And so everybody's talking about Elvis and and I thought, like, well, you know, I'm a little young to have <laughs> to, to have seen him at Ed Sullivan. Uh, I'm a little young to have witnessed the comeback special in real time. And my parents were not Elvis fans, so they were they were more into like Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash. And so, so I'm thinking, like, well, where would I have first heard of Elvis? And I realized that <laughs> that the, the the very first time I'd ever even heard of him was on a Dixie Riddle Cup, um, <laughs> if you remember those. And the, the 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 riddle on this particular cup I got, you know, I was probably five. It said the, the, the riddle was, what's green and sing? And the answer was Elvis Parsley. And I didn't get it. And I was very upset that I didn't get it. So I ran to my mom and I was like, what does Elvis Parsley mean? And she's like, well, Elvis Presley is a singer. I was like, oh, okay. And then I just thought, like, well, that's a weird name, but uh, and and wasn't it and then, was it spelled wrong on the cup? Is that what you wrote? <laughs> no, it was spelled correctly, but I mis you know oh you misread it okay <laughs> misread it as elves parsley and it's like <laughs> this makes no sense at all. So uh, and then about a year later, I see this commercial on TV. You know, they're starting to you know come home from after school, turn on the TV to watch you know cartoons or the three thirty movie or whatever. And and there this um, it was like a, a TV commercial for it was like a two record collection of Elvis's greatest hits, and there and you know it was being shown like every fifteen minutes, and so you know it was like okay this must be that Elvis Presley guy from the Dixie Riddle Cup, <laughs> and uh, but you know and and they only. And in the commercial, because they're trying to fit in, you know, it's like 30 songs or whatever, you only get like the hook or just, you know, one line from each song. But they're all like very memorable lines, very exciting. And as you say, like they, there's just like this handful of kind of stock Elvis images that are just throwing up behind each song. But like I went back and I looked for that commercial on YouTube and I found it and you know, like you, I was amazed that when I, you know, when I hear Love Me Tender, like just in any context, I think of 
the picture that they use in the ad. <laughs> when I hear Jailhouse Rock, I don't think of the Jailhouse Rock dance sequence from the movie. I think of the picture of him from the 68 comeback special that they use in the commercial behind that little bit of Jailhouse Rock. And so it's just, you know, it's fascinating the way this stuff kind of like, you know, gets into your subconscious and stays there. Well, and I grew up, and again, too young to have seen Elvis on Ed Sullivan, obviously aware of him. My mom had some old Elvis 45s, but I, I certainly was not a fan. And, and in the mid-70s, it wasn't very cool to be an Elvis fan. And when I right. changed was actually it came from his death. I was on the radio when the news, you know, young guy on the radio, and the news came across the teletype that he had died, and I announced it on the radio. And wow. it was the reaction. Our phone in the studio began ringing off the hook with people, mostly women, calling in tears, asking for Elvis songs. And the same thing happened the next day. And I think we played nothing but wall-to-wall -wall Elvis for about three days. And, and hearing what a profound impact he had had on people gave me this new appreciation for his music. And I, I did a deeper dive. And, and it was really that that led me to become more of a fan. Well, you know, and and it's interesting because, you know, I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about John Lennon's death. And that was that was what really pushed me deeper into Beatles fandom, you know, because at that point I I liked the Beatles. I didn't know that much about them. But when I when I saw how P, I would have been, what, 14 when when he was murdered and when I saw just the intense worldwide reaction that was like, okay, like, I need to know more about this guy. And, you know, clearly there's, you know, there was more to the Beatles than I want to hold your hand. And, you know, and, and you know, and, and I wanted to learn more about the context of, you know, that these songs were made in and why, you know, what they meant and all this. So that that's really what, what sent me down the, the Beatles rabbit hole <laughs> that I have never fully emerged from since. <laughs> We're talking with Dan Epstein. Uh, check out Jagged Time Lapse on Substack. Dan, well, well a couple of things that I love about uh, Jagged Time Lapse. One is that you're just a terrific writer, but also your, your eclectic taste. And to me, that's what's great about it. And I, I have to think that in some ways, has has made you more adept at writing about music because you like a lot of very different things. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, for a lot of years, I mean, I've I've written for Revolver magazine for twenty some odd years, and and that's a that's a metal magazine. Uh, but you know, I'm not a you know specifically a metal writer. That's just you know that that's a niche I've fallen into, and I like a lot of those bands, and you know, I know how to. I know how to, to to talk to to musicians in that genre, but uh, yeah, I love uh, you know when people say, well, what kind of music do you like? You know, if, if, if you, people have just met me, I mean, it's all over the place. I just, you know, I, I literally just uh, received in the mail last night a uh, shipment of six old uh, seventy eight RPM uh, jazz records from like the thirties and forties, you know, it's just, and I love, uh, everything from like weird, easy listening from the 1960s to, <laughs> uh, you know, funk and seventies funk and, and soul. And I mean, yeah, every, pretty much every, every decade of the last century produced music that, uh, that I love. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I mean, I, one of the, 
freeing things about jagged time lapses. Like it's whatever's on my mind, whatever's obsessing me, I I can write about it, and and hopefully it'll turn some other people onto some music that maybe they're not familiar with, or maybe they know about but never really gave it a lot of thought. And so I, you know, and, and I think that's kind of a problem I have with music journalism in general, you know, in, in the 21st century is that it's all geared towards new releases or, you know, hey, you know, uh, maybe it's geared towards the new release of, of an archival reissue, you know, uh, uh, a reissue of an album that came out 30, 40 years ago, but it's all about, you know, geared towards commerce and what's happening right at this minute. And, and I just think, you know, you miss out on so much by, just focusing on new releases and there's no reason you can't go back and you know and like i said like you know in the, the over the pandemic and like going through a divorce i mean there's so many times where what what made me feel better was not you know whatever you know the latest hit thing that's you know that's cool or supposed to be cool is it's you know, it's like digging out some Marvin Gaye album from the early 70s, digging out a Herb Alpert record from the 60s, just something, you know, it's almost like, like musical comfort food where it's, 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 you just kind of, it, 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 it takes you back into another era mm. almost. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned Herb Alpert because, yeah, and you had posted a picture of, I think it was the, the Going Places album not too long ago. And instantly I flashed back and I, I have such vivid memories uh, those albums to me meant spring because my mom would always play those Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass albums the first time she opened the windows in the spring uh, when Aww. it was warm and the fresh air was coming in. I started playing trumpet as a kid because I wanted to be like Herb Alpert. And, and even today, I have those on vinyl and popping those on the turntable instantly. I'm back there as a kid. And And, you know, and those are great records. Like, you know, I think a lot of people we're down on Herb Alpert because oh, it's not real jazz or whatever, but like th those were all made with the guys from the wrecking crew. Right. Uh, they're just impeccably produced and arranged and they make you feel good. So what's wrong with any of that? And I loved your, re your recent piece on Ferranti and Teicher. There aren't a lot of rock critics writing about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Case, case in point. And, and this, you know, that the name of the sub stack, you yeah, time lapse is all about the, the way that music can, just, you know, serve as this kind of teleportation, you know, time machine and take you back to a certain place. And I was driving, um, I was, I was driving back from my mom's place in Kingston, New York, uh, a couple of weeks ago, had, had uh, the radio on and Fronte and Teicher's theme from Exodus uh, came on. <laughs> and I remembered that that was, you know, that was on this record of, um, 1960 record of Hollywood, you know, theme music, soundtrack songs, and that it used to get played during my gym classes in elementary school. And that like, you know, and they, you know, just stuff for us to run around to. But I remember just feeling so profoundly affected by theme from Exodus, not knowing what the movie was, not knowing who Ferrante and Teicher were, but there was just this, this, dramatic aspect to the music and and it was powerful and i, I sat down uh by the record player in uh in the gym just to listen 
And the assistant gym teacher came over, and I thought she was going to be like, you know, Dan, you know, <laughs> get up and get back out there. And instead, she sat. She she noticed that I was just kind of enraptured with this music, and she sat down next to me. And she go, she said something to the effect of, uh, you know, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? And it was <laughs> like this amazing moment where, it's like, it was almost like adult validation, like, like. Like, I didn't even know how to talk about music at that point or what it was making me feel. And this woman totally picked up on it and and kind of almost explained it to me, you know, un, unintentionally. And, and uh, I, I have no idea what her name was, but I am forever in her debt. We're talking with Dan Epstein. So the other day we had uh, some snow and ice. It was messy. Didn't want to go outside. I, I, channel surfing. And I thought, what, what can I what can I find that I might want to watch here? And I hadn't seen it since it first came out, but I jumped right back into the Doc Ellis documentary, and you play such a key role in that. What a wonderful film that is. That really is. It's so great. And I love, you know, and and probably not a month goes by where I don't get a message or a text from somebody being like, hey, I just saw you on the Doc Ellis uh, uh, documentary. And, I mean, it's it's such, I'm so gratified that people, are moved by it and, and, you know, still find it fascinating and, you know, learn that there really was so much more to Doc Ellis as a player and as a human being than the LSD no-hitter, which, you know, uh, admittedly an impressive feat in and of <laughs> itself, but uh, but he deserves to be rem- remembered for far more than that. And and it was such an honor to be part of that and, and um and, you know, become friends with the filmmakers and, and you know, witness them and root for them as they, they, they you know, put it all together. And um, I mean, but really, really the best thing was I was at a screening uh, that they did in South Central L.A. of, of the film uh, around the time it came out. And Doc's, uh, Doc's family was there. And I was... I, I went up to his mother at the end of uh, the screening and I, you know, introduced myself and she's, she's, you know, she recognized me obviously from the film. She's like, I know who you are. And she's just said, thank you. She said, thank you for, you know, for, for understanding my boy. And that, mm. you know, that meant the world to me. Oh yeah. Well, and I love all your books, but I have to tell you that uh, it's become a, a ritual, a tradition of mine every spring that I, I read through Big hair and plastic grass again every year because it, it gets me ready for baseball season. It reminds me of what I loved about the game. And when I become disgusted with the modern game, uh, I remember those days. And, and all your books are great. But I have something about that one that takes me back to a, a special place in, in my baseball fandom. Well, that is that is awesome to hear. And you know what? That's why I wrote the book was because, like, those, you know, the 1970s were real uh you know, aside from being a fascinating decade uh, for the sport, I mean, that was the time when I became a fan. And that was me wanting to reconnect with, you know, that joy and that, that sense of fandom and interest that I had that I, you know, couldn't find in baseball at the time. And that, you know, so many people, you know, it's done the same thing for. And then for, for, for you know, I, I've, heard from a lot of readers over the years who are a lot younger than me and said that it, you know, gave them an appreciation for an era that they didn't get to experience and wish they had. So, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much the greatest thing you can, uh, you can tell a writer. 
Uh, if people would like to subscribe, and, and by all means, you should go to danepstein.substack.com. I, I don't even know what it is. It's cheaper than a dozen eggs, but I'm happy to pay it every month because it's so great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, for, for you know, it's, it's five. You, you can subscribe for free um, and get, you know, uh, quite a number of, of things to read for free. But if you want all the stuff, uh, which includes a lot of, like, in-depth interviews that I've done that I've never published in, you know, in their entirety. It's only $5 a month, which is, you know, less than a dozen eggs, less than a cup of coffee. It's less than, uh, less, less than a pint of beer at most uh, bars. So, uh, and, and I think, uh, I think you'll get more enjoyment out of, uh, out of it than any of those things. Absolutely. Maybe not the eggs. Maybe not, but, but it, it's, it's the best thing that shows up in my inbox. So I, I always smile when that day arrives. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rich. I really appreciate that. You bet. Hey, it's always great to talk with you, Dan. Thanks for making time for us today. We wish you continued success with a Jagged Time Lapse and, and look forward to that book, too, down the road. Right on. Thanks, Rich. And good, good luck to you with everything. Dan Epstein talking with us about Jagged Time Lapse, the Substack blog. It's great, worth your subscription time and money. Even if you get the free version, it's fine. But you spend the five bucks, get the full deal. You'll certainly enjoy it. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Bert Kreischer as well, and to you for being with us this week on the program. We'll see you next time on Downtown.